My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, from the most trusted news source in America, the Babylon Bee, I would like to share with you some encouraging notes about church world. Local family looks forward to new church solving all their problem. Jackson. The Connolly family has had lots of problems at the church they've attended in the past five years, from poor coffee offerings to sermons that made them feel uncomfortable at times. But all that is about to change. The Connollys have left their small but faithful congregation for a sprawling new megachurch in their area, and they're very excited that for the first time, their new church is going to solve all their material problems. It's a new start for all of us, Jim said, as he told reporters, and once we've attended at least monthly and sent our kids to the exciting youth programs, well, our problems are going to solve themselves. In fact, we'll barely have to parent our children anymore. Now, it's not just earthly problems that this new church is going to solve. The Connollys are also confident their spiritual problems will go away too. You know, they say the previous church had faithful Bible preaching week in and week out, but they were not feeling fed. All of our sin was really our pastor's fault for not feeding us exactly the spiritual meal we were given and needed on any given day. At this new church, Heather says, the exciting illustrations and movie clips will instantly eradicate any sin from our lives. Now, closer to home here in Vancouver, a couple seeks new church where they can experience deeper, more reliable connection to Wi-Fi. (laughs) See, they haven't been able to find a church with a deep and long-lasting authentic connection to the internet. The couple had recently left their previous church when they felt less and less connected to the Wi-Fi. I don't like to sit around and bash the church, but it's very disconnected, Brandon said after a recent visit to a Vancouver church. I can't even stream Game of Thrones during the sermon on my phone. Heidi made a similar remark saying, churches are destined to grow stagnant, irrelevant, and lifeless without a profound and robust connection to the internet. I can't attend a church if it doesn't, you know, reach and nourish my iPhone. I need a worship experience that brings me straight up to the most up-to-date sports stores without perceivable lag. I need a worship not in part, but with full bars. After all, we serve a connected God, not a shallow savior of unreliable connectivity. And finally, this one. Unsatisfied church, persecuted church member to try out other church just across the minefield, somewhere in Iraq, stating that he just doesn't feel like he's being fed by his persecuted underground church. Local man plans on trying out a competing church just 30 miles across a deadly patch of open desert that is covered with live explosives. 
Pastor Malik is a great guy and everything, but I don't know. The youth program is just okay, and the refreshments are lacking. The pastor is a pretty good teacher, but he just doesn't make the living word of God come alive, you know? Haddad told reporters through an encoded message for fear of giving away the location of the church, which could result in further persecution or martyrdom of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, I heard about another Christian church about eight hours from here by foot on the other side of the passage of certain death. I think my family and I are going to go check it out. We love Pastor Malik and all, and we wish him all the best, but I feel like it's God's will for us to go church shopping. Haddad said as he and his family began preparations for the dangerous journey across the mine-laden desert, we really hope this new church has the vibe that we're looking for. Now, I share those in jest because I wonder in our American culture why we go to church. I mean, think about that. Why do you come to Sunrise? Why do you come to Sunrise? What's, what's in it for you? Uh, what, what, you, what you feel, what you experience. If you walk away from here today, you go, man, that was a great worship experience. I love the band. I love the vibe. Uh, the way they did the lights or, you know, the way the pastor preached or, man, the coffee was just really good today. I got to go tell my friends about the coffee at sunrise. It's really good. Or, you know, that fellowship treat afterwards. I can't believe they went all out and they had that little side of chocolate. That, that's, that just made me feel good today. Now, I, I tease in those things. But the reality is we all do have a commercial consumeristic side of our lives. We do. That's just how we're wired in our American culture, consumeristic culture. But the question is, you know, do we know we're bringing that into church? Do we know that we bring that same innate desire to pick and choose based on how we feel into our relationship with God or the local church family? I mean, why do we come to church? What we're going to get out of it, what we're going to give What does it mean to be a part of a church, to be a part of a church family? Are we just church attenders? We show up and we give an hour, hour and a half. Um, And if we like the length of things and we like the style and we walk away feeling energized and pumped up, we go, man, that was a great sermon. That was a great message. I learned years ago that there's something about us. It's kind of a sick, twisted nature. We like what I call the bad dog sermon. The bad dog sermon is when you smack the dog on the nose of the newspaper because of what they did and they go away, but they love you anyway. In fact, there's almost this sadistic pleasure in feeling bad. I mean, I've had more than enough people go, oh, that was a good sermon. You made me feel horrible. It's like, what is it about us? It's like, man, you beat, you beat me up. You put me in my place. That just made me feel good. There is a sick side of us that feels good about feeling bad as if that eradicates something inside of us, right? It doesn't change us. Unless we change. And yet, we all know that we've been at a church where we feel like, I don't know. Is it really the right kind of church? How would we even know what the right kind is? How would you choose if all of a sudden you moved across the country or to another place and and you had to find a church? How would you judge? How would you kind of pick and perceive a healthy church, uh, a biblical church? Uh, part of my job as a conservative Baptist association in the Northwest as, uh, you know, moving into that executive director position is to be a part of a team that evaluates church health. It's kind of threatening, you know, it's kind of challenging to think we're being called in to assess a church's health. I mean, if you go to the doctor, the doctor does all this poking and prodding and measuring and things like that, and they just end up telling you, he or she says, here's this, here's that, here's my advice for you. How do you do that with a church? How do you evaluate the health of a church? It's pretty threatening, right, to think that. 
What would it look like if someone were to come into sunrise and say, here's the good, here's the bad, here's what we need to change? Or let me turn it back on us. What would it look like if someone were to come in, if Jesus were to sit with you today at church and say, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's how you need to change. Here's where you need to grow. Because I'm a firm believer that when you think about it, the church is, is a we, that's for sure, but it's a you. You are the church. You are a member of the church, the family of God. And if you're not, fill in the blank, how can the church be that? Or if you are, the church will become that, right? A like attracts like, and all of a sudden, we have people that are like that, and the church is known for that, right? Or we can sit down and sit back and kind of kick back and get into complaining mode, but I, I wish the church were more like this. Well, then I would turn that around. Are you more like that? And if so, how can you help affect other people's life and see change in their life to become more and more like that? Because it's easy to criticize what we're not doing ourselves, right? It's easy somehow to see the church as like a corporate entity, like a business almost, and, you know, fire off our complaints to HR, you know, or write a nasty little note to someone and just think that's going to do something. But what is the church except a bunch of people, right? That God has saved, God has changed, he's brought into his family, now we're brothers and sisters, and you know what? That you've never met a family that's perfect. You never have. It may look good on the outside, but once you get to know people, people are weird. <laughs> right? I mean, not you. <laughs> but me, you know? And you know you can't join a perfect church because you'd mess it up. You know, you'd be the first imperfect person along and you'd blow the whole thing up, right? But when we think about a church and a healthy church, what would it look like? What would be a picture of the church we could strive to be like? Because we know no church is perfect. Sunrise isn't perfect. We have a lot of growing to do. But how do we evaluate? What's the metric? What, you know, is there a one to ten on these areas? And what are the areas that we could say, this is a healthy church or this is a weak church? Well, thankfully, we've been in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we're seeing the church, the very first church. It's exciting to see this first church because we get a glimpse of what God's spirit did 2,000 years ago when the church was born, which is great. But the reason we're preaching through it and teaching through it at sunrise is because I think if we really open our eyes to it, we will find that we are in the exact same spot as the early church. The church of 2,000 years ago looks a lot like us because the culture of 2,000 years ago looks a lot like us today. Now, we've so far seen the church begin in this area called Jerusalem, uh, reaching Jewish people. Everybody, the early followers, they were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew, and it's a Jewish message from a Jewish Old Testament, so we know that. And so it's an easy message to communicate to the Jews. Then Jesus said it would go to Judea, which is the bigger, broader area, kind of like our county, the countryside. But again, they're all Jewish people. They know it. All you have to do is talk about Messiah or talk about Scripture. Everybody gets it. They were raised, born that way, bred that way. They were fed that way. Everybody gets it. Then it goes to the Samaritans. And we saw that. That was exciting because now it's for the first time crossing a cultural barrier. It's reaching another group of people. In fact, a hated group of people. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. And so the racial tension has to be conquered with the message of Jesus. But the fact is the Samaritans also believed the Old Testament. 
and they considered themselves to be the true Jewish people, the true descendants of Abraham. And so now you've got a people that you share with that are culturally different than you. You've been raised to hate those people, but when you share, they have the same foundation as you. And even when we saw the church kind of begin to move into the Gentile territory with Philip reaching the Ethiopian. He's from, obviously, Ethiopia, another continent, another culture, another race, but he's still a God-fearer because he's reading Isaiah. He's reading the text. He knows the Bible. He's going to the temple to worship. He already has this innate foundation that's somehow been placed in him that makes him an easy person to share Jesus with. And then we saw the last couple of weeks, Paul, who is both a a, a Jew by birth, but a Gentile in many ways by his background and culture, easy person to share the message with. And then last week with Peter going to Cornelius and Cornelius is definitely a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a centurion. He's in charge of ruling over the people. And yet he's a God fearer. He automatically, somehow, there's somehow he's been reached and he believes the message of Judaism, the true Yahweh God. And so in the midst of that, he's already primed for hearing the message of Jesus. But for the first time today, we see the church go to uncharted territory. We see the church step out, stretch itself, and reach a people that have no clue about the Bible, that have no concept about Christianity that would not understand the idea of a Christ or Messiah. You know, in many ways, we live in that culture today. We used to live in a culture of what we would call God-fearers. I know as a person born in the 1960s that I was born into a culture that basically understood certain things. They were taught certain things. You know, back when I was a kid, you still prayed in school. There were certain rules and certain understandings from a Judeo-Christian ethics or a foundation. And so it was easy to talk to people because half the battle was already won because they grew up with that culture. But my kids today, they, they're growing up in a completely different culture. My three teenage boys, they are growing up in a world that for the most part has no foundation in the Bible, Judeo-Christian ethics, that the cultures that have come in and the cultures that have immersed themselves in our world and our literature and our language and our culture and our ethics and our education and our media, you know, all across the board, it's different than when I grew up. And so how do we preach a message of Jesus when we have to start at step one. When I came to faith in Jesus, nobody had to start at step one with me. I already had steps one to five because I just kind of grew up in America with a church background. I just kind of accepted certain things as true. It was easier for someone to share the message with me than it is for my sons to share the message with their friends. But I don't think all hope is lost. In fact, I think we have great hope. Because what we see in this church we're going to examine today in Acts chapter 11 is the hope for where we are at in our culture. So as we jump into the text, we're going to do this. And as we see this, we're going to see the church move into an area called Antioch, a city. So um, this is a little map here pulled from my Bible study programs, Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things spirituality, Judea, the countryside, Samaria, still pretty close to you know, the heartbeat of Judaism. But then now we see, because we'll see in a moment, because of persecution, because of the stress on the church to to basically flee for your lives, they move up through Phoenicia on the coast to this city called Antioch. And Antioch, 300 miles away, a very cosmopolitan city, a very corrupt city, I mean, a very commercialized city, 
a city of a half a million people, over a half a million people, a metropolis, these country bumpkins, as it were, move into this place, and it's amazing what happens. They do not withdraw. They do not hide. They do not cower. They do not just settle into their little enclaves and isolate themselves from the culture. They move into the culture, and they permeate the culture with the message of Jesus. You know, if I were to ask about the health of a church, I would just want to know one thing. Are they making disciples? Because that's what Jesus said, right? That's the one command he gave us. He said, go, which is, you know, you got to go, you got to share the message into all the world and make disciples, disciple people to me, Uh, teach people about me, learn people to me is kind of how the vernacular would be. Learn them to Jesus. Make students of me, not academic students, but lifelong disciples and baptize them, bring them into the family of God, teach them all these things to that, and then teach them all that I've commanded because then they're going to go and make more disciples. So I'd have to ask a church, if I were to assess its health, I would ask, are you making disciples? Because I don't know how you could be disobedient to the Great Commission and expect the blessing of God. If a church didn't make disciples, if nobody's coming to faith because nobody's reaching out, if nobody's growing in their relationship with God, if they're not impacting and permeating their culture and their community, if disciples are not being made, how could you sit there and go, well, we're a healthy church. I think you're a dysfunctional church. You might even be a dead church, but I know you're a disobedient church. Well, now let me just bring this down to you and to me, and let's all be offended by this. If you're not making disciples, then you're disobedient to Jesus' command. Because he's only given one. It's not like, there's 52 things. We get to choose one. No. This is the one thing he told us to do, and make disciples. And if you're not making disciples, if you're not a part of the process of seeing someone connect in a relationship with God, you're not sharing the gospel message, seeing someone come to believe in Jesus, if you're not helping somebody grow in that relationship where they're learning the things of Jesus and you're actively teaching and engaging in a relationship where they're growing to know Jesus, if you're not helping people serve and discover their gifts and talents and you know, igniting them and equipping them to do these sort of things to live out the life of Jesus, and if you're not then transferring that over, leading them to do it with the next generation of people, then you're not making disciples. And if you're not making disciples, you're disobedient to Jesus. Hey, but I want to come to a church where I just sit there comfortably and sit in a comfortable chair and sing comfortable songs and hear a comfortable sermon and go comfortably home to my Super Bowl game. Jesus didn't give us that option. He didn't. He didn't say, well, as a concession, I'll let you create another kind of church where you can just all be comfortable. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all people, of all nations, of all people groups, of all cultures, baptize and teach them, and I'll be with you to the ends of the earth. That's how we judge and judge the health of a church. Well, we're going to see this church, which is just outstanding. We're going to have to go quickly through it. We're going to see this idea of this church, and we're going to evaluate our, our lives and our church based on this church of Antioch. It says in chapter 11, verses 19 and 21, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's up the coast, Cyprus. Cyprus is the island there off of uh, Turkey and Syria and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. This is the safe section. They just preached to Jews because they were Jews. It's easy to reach Jews. However, 
This is the monumental shift. Some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus, this culture, and Cyrene, an outside Jewish culture, they began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. This was a gospel message, gospel-centered, gospel-sharing church. This church lived the gospel message about Jesus, the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to give his life for you, and that Jesus Christ died, according to the scriptures, was buried. We know that he died, and then he rose again, according to scriptures, and we know he rose again because he appeared to all these people, and so we just preach this simple message. God died for our sins, and God rose again to prove all of that. That's all I know. That's the only message I've got, is that God so loved you that he sent his son to die for your sins, all of your dysfunction, all of your brokenness, all of your disobedience, all of the things that you don't do, that you don't match up to, your own desires and goals for yourself, let alone God's desires and goals for you, the perfect standard he has. Jesus died for your sins. And we know he died because he was buried for three days and he lay in the ground there in that earth in that cave. And then he was resurrected. And we know he was resurrected because the scripture said it and he appeared to all these people. And that proved everything Jesus said. And you now have hope and you now have victory. And they took that message to completely Gentile people who never knew anything about about that message. These people worshiped gods and goddesses. They went to the temple every week. They offered sacrifices. They offered incense. They offered meat to their idols. And then they worshiped these idols. But you know the idols of our age never are satisfied. They are never fully, completely satisfied. They are burdens that we have to bear. These idols, these gods, these things we worship back then, Apollo and Athena and those kind of gods, today, possessions, materialism, pleasure, all of the dreams and desires of our culture, they're never satisfied. It's one of the reasons why I love our church because we have a recovery mentality. And if you've ever been through any kind of recovery, A, A, N, A, or any of the A's, uh, you will know that step one is simply this. You've got to come to the point when you admit you are what? Powerless. Thank you. You guys know. It's good. You're powerless. Whatever you have placed as a God is ruling your life and you're powerless. You have to admit that. You've lost. That's the confession. Well, that's that's exactly what we do with Jesus. We confess that we're powerless against our sin and we need a savior to come in. Those gods that we serve, they're ruthless. They're never satisfied. You'll never know if you've appeased it enough. You don't know if you've done enough to merit it, right? Whether a spiritual God, like an idol, literally an idol, or more of like a metaphysical kind of way we live our lives, hoping and putting hope in something that's immaterial, but it's a dream for us. It never satisfies. This was a gospel-sharing church. Not only that, it was, uh, it was a beautiful church that went out and actually communicated the message in a specific way. Let's go to the next text here. It says, when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas is a fascinating guy because he exhibited this encouraging culture. It was a very encouraging church because this guy was the lead encourager. But Barnabas wasn't his name. It wasn't his name at all. It was a nickname. In fact, if we go back in history, in chapter 4 of Acts, we saw this. It says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one 
the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, Bar meaning son, son of encouragement. He was sent from the tribe of Levi, or he was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So Barnabas encouraged people in a lot of ways. He sacrificed, he lifted people up, he challenged people. The word encouragement is an interesting word because there's a range. This word can be on one side of the pendulum to the other side of the pendulum. On one side, it's a word of empathy or sympathy. It's the idea of being gentle sympathetic to the needs of another person. When you come along someone who's hurting, someone who's weak, someone who has a wound, and you just are in that moment with them, that is being encouraging. Uh, last Sunday night, I was getting coffee there, and I was just kind of there, and I looked over, and I said, said hi to a gal. I said, how you doing? And I, as I was speaking and saying the words, I saw tears streaming down her face. I'm like, oh, I can see you're not doing well. And I went up, I said, hey, can I give you a hug? And she said, yeah, and I just hugged her, and I held on to her, and I heard her cry and her ache. And, and I, I said, can I pray for you? And I prayed for her. And then my wife came up and then we said, would you sit down with us in church? And we sat in church and she felt better. And there were just some things. She just needed a sympathetic hug. You just, some, sometimes you need someone to hold your hand, right? Am I right? And sometimes you need to do that for others. That's encouraging. But you know, there's another side of encouragement. If you pendulum swing, the same word can actually mean something a lot more challenging and forceful to spur on and challenge another person. That's when encouragement means to get, get out the baseball bat and smack someone upside of the head because they need it, right? Hopefully you've been encouraged that way. Kick them in the seat, right? Sometimes we've got to be encouraged in a challenging sort of way. I'll never forget this years ago, one time, this is for me, the epitome of it, I went into someone's office, a brother in Christ, and I sat there and I called out sin. And I said, you have to change your ways. You have to stop sinning and you have to come back to the Lord. Man, I was sweating. I do not enjoy those confrontations. That is not me. I'd rather hold someone's hand, right? But that brought that person back. Oh man, that was hard. I did not like looking forward to that appointment, but you need it. And I need it. Cool thing is you need both. If some of you are the hammer, just don't crush people. You know what I mean? Encourage them, but, but let up, you know? Quit swinging after a while. And if some of you are gentle, don't just hold their hand. This is basically holding your hand and dragging you by the hand. That's what encouragement means. Encouragement is sometimes you need to be kind and tender and gentle. That's a beautiful part of encouragement. But if you're only that, you won't say the hard words. And so we need both in our lives. We need to be both. Maybe you're gentle, soft people. That's good. We need that. But if you don't say the hard stuff, you're not helping people. Uh, likewise, if you're, you know, the rough and tumble person, that might just be an excuse for being a mean person, you know? It's like, I'm the prophet of God. No, you're just a jerk, you know? That's not encouraging, but you do need to also be sympathetic. And so anyway, this is how encouragement is used. This is how Barnabas was, and this church was encouraging. I'll never forget uh, Dr. Carl Blanchard, my pastoral ministry professor in uh, Bible college. He talked about preaching, and he had us in his preaching class, and he judged our preaching and evaluated our preaching. And then he was going to preach in chapel. So all of us little young guys were excited about judging our preacher, you know. And he preached about Barnabas. And he preached about encouragement. And he said, you know what? From here on out, if you see me in the hallway, I give you permission to not call me Dr. Blanchard, but to call me Barney. Now, this is before the purple dinosaur came around. I'm that old. But he said, when you call me Barney, that will encourage me. Because we all need that at times. We need 
We need a Barnabas in our life to encourage us. And this church was an encouraging church. You need both in your life. And not only that, it was a discipling church. Take a look at this. It says here, then, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Saul had been saved, had been in a relationship with God now through Jesus for a, a number of years, but he's growing in this relationship, but he hasn't yet been brought back into the church because people are afraid of him because they know his history. They know his background. They know his heritage. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. I'll talk about that at the end. This is a discipling church. Paul and Barnabas came in and they helped these new believers. These people are coming to faith and they're teaching them about Jesus and they're helping them grow up. And like I said, they're helping them serve and they're helping them figure this out and then handing the baton to them and doing that so that the church can be a discipling church. I don't know if you've ever been discipled. I, I can't say with you know, real accuracy that I was discipled. I know I went through discipleship class with a book for 12 weeks with fill in the blanks. Not against that necessarily, but that's not discipleship. Discipleship is life-on-life relationship, one-on-one, one-on-three, small group, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever been discipled, but I know you're commanded to disciple. And sometimes we're called to do things that weren't done to us, and we just learn along the way. In fact, I think that's one of the greatest things. If you don't feel like you're a discipler and you don't know much about it, just meet with us. We'll get you some people that need discipled. We'll connect you with some materials, and we'll say go, and we'll walk through the process with you. Had someone just you know, after this last service, talk with me. And I just said, I know exactly who needs to meet with this person. And I sent a text and I already got a text back while I was up here giving the welcome and announcements. And while Kevin was talking, I just said, thank you so much with my little watch. And they're going to meet this week. Technology can be amazing. Um, but, but the fact is, is that if you don't feel like it's ever happened to you, I know that feeling. But when you start doing it, man, God shows up and you learn the things you didn't learn before by actually doing it and teaching and leading others. This is a discipling church. I love it. And finally, you know, as you take a look at this, this is a beautiful thing. This was a very generous church. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send a relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take the, to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. I love it because they looked back and said, hey, this church in Jerusalem, they're going to suffer. They're going to have a need. We have to give over and above and be generous because God's given to us. I mean, they're like the mother church. We, we, we have to give back. And in many ways, being generous is an expression of our faith. A lack of generosity reveals that we've forgotten how much God has given to us. And then just one more thing, and I'm going to look at a couple texts on this. Uh, they were a multicultural church. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch, Assyria, were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod, Antipas, and Saul. I mean, look at these. This is like a diverse group of people. This is a multicultural church, and the leadership is multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-race. It's beautiful because they're reaching a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-race group of people, the Gentiles, and they reflect that in their leadership, and it's beautiful. Every one of these guys uh, are from a different background, and it's really only 
Barnabas, who's a Jew, uh, and then Saul, who's a Jew, but the rest are Gentiles from varying parts of Africa and the northern tip there. Uh, someone who's a friend, you know, childhood companion of King Herod, so a Roman. And it's a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And they do this because what they end up realizing is that the old label of Jew no longer fit. In fact, that's why they were called Christians. The non-believers, the world called these people Christians, which means of the party of Christ or uh, a follower of or representative of or a little one of those. Like the guy who was uh, King Herod, he would have been called a Herodian because he was of the follower, the party of, kind of in line with Herod. Well, now we're called Christians because we're of the party of Jesus, the party of Christ, the in line with, the representative of. Because the old label of being a Jew or Gentile no longer worked because it was, let's just have one label for everybody, and that's a follower of Christ, a Christian. I want to do jump to one other text here. It's really cool here on this. It says, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, apart Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, these men, the men laid their hands on them and sent them out. This multicultural, multi-ethnic, generous, encouraging, challenging, discipling, worshiping church, they realized that God was moving them to move out. And this is really just a missionary sending church. And what I love about that is that what's in this room right now, some of you need to leave. Some of you need to move. Some of you need to feel the call of God in your life that this is too safe. That God is moving in your life to go somewhere else for the express purpose of sharing the gospel. That could move across town. That could move across the state, move across the country, move across the world. But that's what it means to be part of a disciple-making healthy church. The very first church strategically sent people out. As we sum up, well, this is kind of the list of what we see in the church. If you'll jump to that slide there, this was a gospel-sharing church. You know what? If you don't share the gospel, it won't be a gospel-sharing church. You can't just let the gospel people share it. We all have to share it. Now, now you've got to use words, and you've got to use actions, word and deed, but you've got to share it. We will not be evangelistic if you're not. In fact, we will just like pull back on that. But it's a gospel-sharing church. We see people saved all the time here. People come to faith in Jesus Christ, leave their brokenness and sin and dysfunction, and enter into a relationship with God because people are willing to share. This was an encouraging church. Man, you might sit here and go, but Pastor James, I need encouragement. I'll go, good. You know, you know how I can fix that? Go encourage someone. That's like the best advice for anybody. I know you're weak. I know you're struggling. But would you just come alongside someone and love them? We'll bring someone for you, but you have to go to somebody else. Because don't just stay stuck in your little, I need encouragement mode. You need to go out and give to somebody else. The same thing with discipling. You need to go out and disciple. You need to find a person that is far from God, see them come to faith, see them grow in that relationship, and be able to be their spiritual parent. That's what God has called all of us to be. And if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for six months or a year, you have had enough time to start doing that. Now, those of us who have been a follower of Christ for decades, we better be doing it because that's the responsibility of those who are older and mature. For, for whatever God's invested in your life, you've got to use it out to other people. This was a generous church. I love, I love our church because we are a generous church. This last fall, we put a call out in the Mercy Fund area, the Benevolence Fund, saying we've got Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas, and so many dollars came in. I, I wanted to stand up and say, would you please stop giving? 
Heather Brown wouldn't let me say that though. Um, but, but the reality is we received far more than we've ever received before. And that allowed us to bless far more than we've ever blessed before. We are at an all time high as serving on our shelter because people are giving and people are serving and we have that capacity because more people are plugging into that multicultural church. Again, we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. What does it take to be multicultural, to cross the room and to reach another culture and a missionary sending church? Well, it's so exciting to see uh, Mandy and Sampi Brown sent out this last year to go to the Basque region of Spain, full-time go out to be a missionary over there. We were able to see uh, Aaron and Liz earlier in the year go out and, and uh, you know, it's just exciting to be able to launch them out in the mission work to see uh, Bethany Olson go and decide, you know, that being a nurse here was not enough. She's going to go be a nurse and a caregiver over in the Gambia and share the gospel with that. What are we going to see this year at Sunrise? We're only going to see it if that's you and you respond to the nudge of God. Now, I, I really don't know what a perfect church looks like. We're a messy church. We really are. But I like that because we're working together to see what God wants in this culture, in this age. But if we're ever truly going to impact people, if we're ever going to be more than just a church for us, we used to be like that, an inward church. But if we're going to stay with our arrows out, an outward, externally focused church, it's going to be because you sense the move of God in your life that I need to take a step. I need to fill in the blank. I need to share the gospel. I need to encourage and on and on. And you do that. And if, you, if you're struggling with that, Welcome to the family, because we all struggle with those things. But let's struggle together as we move together to be this. Because what I really believe, and you know it, and we talk about it, what this community needs is not another church. They need the gospel message of Jesus lived out, flowing out of us every day, so that when we come together, we're fed, we're encouraged, we're charged up, and we share the message, we go out and live it. Because God forbid that I would just pastor a church that just, we just kind of exist for ourselves. I'd quit. I don't want to do that. That's boring. I want a church that's risking, that's living on the edge and the ledge, knowing that, God, if we fail, this thing could go wrong. <laughs> okay, so save us from ourselves. But we're willing to risk it all to move out. That's what it takes. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this snapshot of the church in Antioch. It's very much like our culture, very much like our world today, and it's exciting. I know we feel threatened at times. We feel like the world is against us, and I, I get that, but the fact is the world's always been against us, but you have been for us, and you have been for us moving out into that world and preaching the message of Jesus and living the message of Jesus and seeing people come to faith with the message of Jesus. So move in us this week to be that church of Antioch in the community that you've put us in, we pray in your name. Amen.